Hello, thanks for tuning in to the Coffee and Pens podcast with Prophets Patrick and myself, Kiel von der Vivere. If you're interested in generating passive income from a book, you need to stick around until the end of this episode. I promise this will be one of the most valuable hours on your writing journey. We discussed product testing your book, different marketing strategies, and a secret to creating a book that sells through word of mouth. I hope you enjoy it. Hello, Rob. Uh, thank you for talking to me for Coffee and Pens. How's it going? Uh, my pleasure to be here. Thank you for having me. It's uh, going great. I'm in the, the mountains of Spain. And yeah, a little bit hot, but we're uh, not as hot as you're dealing with, I'm sure. Couldn't be better the mountains of Spain. <laughs> yeah, I'm here in the Amazon rainforest and it's a little bit, a bit hotter. Um, <laughs> but we'll get through this. So let's get started right away with your writing process. You, re- you said that you have a morning routine that starts uh, after a pint of coffee. Which coffee might that be? Oh, I, I like a, uh, a a weak American brew. You know, I just use the drip machine and I put on a put on a nice big pot of weak coffee, and that kind of gets me going through to lunchtime. And I like that in the mornings. I uh, you know brew the coffee, walk the dogs, I play some games of chess online. Uh, sometimes I plan the day, sometimes I don't. It depends what else is going on. You know, the nice thing about books is you wake up every day knowing what your top priority is. And so you don't really need to plan that much. You go like, okay, I just need to open up the manuscript and get into it. Right. Sounds amazing. So you don't, you don't write every morning as soon as you wake up. So I, I, I do write every day when I'm in the book stage. And I typically do half days every day. So seven days a week, but I only work half days. And for me, that's great. But I have the luxury of kind of, you know, writing is like my full-time thing. And, and I, I do little businesses also, but you know, when I'm in the middle of a book, I, I prioritize that time. So I wake up and I, I'm going to work on this because it's hard to juggle other priorities and this wouldn't work alongside a job, but I kind of go into writing retreat mode where my best hours are the first four hours of the day and I just burn them down on the book. I don't look at messages. I don't check email. Uh, I, I ignore the rest of the world. And I just work on the book until I'm tired. Then I stop for the day, I get lunch. And then if there's stuff I need to deal with, you know, emails or whatever in the afternoon, I, I do that. But I make sure my best hours go into my book work, whether that's talking to beta readers, editing, writing, planning the launch, whatever it is, there's always something to do for a book. Yeah, I can imagine. So while writing these books, what are the main tools you go to? So I, I write my software tools, super, super simple. I use Google Docs. Uh, I like it because... I like getting beta readers and editors in quite early when possible. And I I built a tool called Help This Book for beta reading specifically, but for my first two books, I use Google Docs. And I like, it's a nightmare if you're exporting PDFs. I like them to be working in the same document that I'm working in so that I'm getting their revisions while I'm I'm going. And so basically Google Docs I use for all my writing. I've used Scrivener in the past, but it's just too opinionated for me. It's not what I like. And... GDocs is enough. Then in terms of my productivity, the, the best thing I do is recognizing when my good hours are and making sure I've given my good hours to the book. Because I find that, for example, if I start the day with email or business or whatever, by the afternoon, I, I no longer have the energy to do like deep creative work on the book. But if I do the book first, I can still do email in the afternoon. And so one way I can get my book work done and the other way I can't. The other tools I use is a lot of context control. So by that, I mean in the city, moving between dedicated spaces where all I've brought with me is my equipment for writing. Whether that's a paper notebook or a laptop, it doesn't really matter. But I I do a lot of things like leaving my phone at home and then going to a place with no internet, just just trying to tune out the distractions. And I'm very distractible at home. 
like I, I use my computer for video games and for Netflix and for all this stuff. And so I find that when I'm in that context, it's so easy to be like, oh, I'll just play a quick game of chess or a quick round of whatever. And then next thing you know, four hours have gone by and I've lost my writing energy. Uh, now I live in the mountains, so, you know, we don't have access to cafes, but we have enough kind of, you know, natural spaces. Um, we've got a river. I do a lot of like jump in the cold water if I'm, I'm sort of distracted and stressed out about work. Uh, sit in the cold water for a minute, then it's like clear head. Okay, I, I, now I can start my writing. Okay, I liked um, a few of those things that you just said, especially like jumping in the river, going outdoors and leaving all internet connections. I assume you could still go to the to the park and take your notebook and, and start writing over there. Yeah, what I want... super helpful. Uh, Marty Kagan, who wrote um, Inspired and Empowered, both really successful books, he says that he, he, he walks his dogs for an hour or two per day. And before he leaves, he tries to plant an important idea in his head for his books. And then while he's walking, he's mulling over, how do I explain this? What's the right metaphor? How do I order this? And he often comes back and he says, then he has a great you know, hour of writing right after getting back from walking the dogs. Um, I, I, I like that. Yeah, I think it's important that you take enough time for that plant the idea. Many people talk about going outdoors, go for a walk. But when I try to do that, I go for a walk for only 15, 20 minutes. I don't usually get to a point where, I, where I'm thinking about new ideas. For, for me, I do most of my thinking. I need the paper to, to be thinking. And so like, if I'm walking somewhere or, or wandering between cafes, uh, like I did most of my writing in, you know, in Barcelona and London and you know, big cities, I would just walk around the city with a notebook in my pocket and I would sit down at a cafe and I would be working on something or, you know, a laptop in my bag, I'd be working on something. And as soon as I got stalled, I'd just pack up and walk until I felt like an idea coming. Then I sit down in another cafe and, and cities are such a beautiful environment for writing for that reason. Uh, you know, you've got the comfort of air conditioning and a chair and a table mm. and a coffee, uh, but you can still keep changing your, your, your context and seeing new things. Um, the, the other thing I, I've used in the past, especially for my first book, was boredom. I, I wrote the whole first draft of my first book because I was on a really weird vacation where it was kind of awkward. And I, I was with people I didn't know that well. And I was isolated in this little cabin. And I didn't have any internet or entertainment. I just had a blank notebook. And I basically wrote in, in, in longhand the full first draft of that book. And of course, it needed to be rewritten. The first draft was terrible but it got me started. And it was just because my brain was so bored. I was like, I need to do something. And the foundation that that came out of was teaching because I'd already taught it. So I had the explanation in my head. And, and for me, teaching is always the first step of a book. And you know, then after you've taught it a bit, you know it works, then you can pound down the drafts. And then after that, you're into beta reading. Right. How long ago was this that you started on, on the mom test? The very first book came out in 2013. And it took me nine months to write from start to finish. That was the, the fastest I've done was my first book. The other books took me more like 18 to 24 months. And so, yeah, what, 2013? It's what, eight years ago, nine years ago, I would have started. Uh, yeah. So you wrote in the first draft of the mum test in a cabin, kind of because of your report. Yeah. In Bavaria, southern Germany. Yeah. And um, how long did it take to write that first draft? The first draft, uh, I've still got the notebook. It was only a week, but I was probably just writing for four to six hours per day. And it was, there was no pausing. There was no deliberation because I'd already taught and coached the topic enough that I kind of knew when you teach, teaching is kind of a way to MVP or prototype a book because you get to learn whether your underlying education design, at least for nonfiction, if your message works, if the educational design works, you get to anticipate the reader's questions and confusions and concerns. 
And I find that type of writing really easy. Whereas if I'm thinking through a new topic that I haven't really taught or thought about before, I find the writing very slow because the writing is the thinking. And I find it more helpful for books because it's just so big. It's more helpful to do the thinking first via teaching or coaching and then do the writing and just, a, for me, it's just a brain dump at that point. So the first draft is really quick. The slow part is the beta reading and the editing. All right. So you say the first draft is really quick, but that happens because you did a lot of preparation beforehand, even though you may not have considered it as preparation. Correct. Yeah. And when I'm doing the prep, I'm not even sure if I'm going to write a book. Like with my current one, Write Useful Books, it started because a friend of mine asked for some advice about writing her own nonfiction book. And so we agreed to meet at a cafe and I would answer her questions. But I said, hey, to make the most of our time together, let me write some advice for you first. Read that before we meet. And then we can spend the time like answering your questions instead of just dealing with the basics. And I wrote it and it was a big bullet point list, about 10 pages long of just do this, don't do this, watch out for this, be careful about this, think about this, boom, boom, boom. And when she showed up to the meeting, she was like, that was incredible. Can I share that with my friends? And so that was my first draft of the book was just a 10 page long bullet point list of advice. And over time, I was immediately into beta reading then because people were reading the list and asking me questions. And I was just, when I answered their questions, I would expand a list item into two or three paragraphs. And that became a section of the book. And, and I did it like that. The more in contact with your future readers you can be, the easier time you'll have because it avoids all this self-doubt about does anyone want it? Am I writing the right thing? Are they going to buy it? Is it worth the effort? You, you know it's worth the effort because people are already waiting to read it. Yeah, that's a great strategy. So I was wondering how you came up with the topics for each book, but you kind of already explained that you had already been teaching everything around the mom test. So that got you into writing the first book. And so then there's this... a little bit more detail I can add there. I, uh -huh. I'd been, I'd gone through my first business. We'd been funded by Y Combinator. We'd raised money from pretty good VCs. We had some big customers and then we ultimately failed at around year three or year four. And I was pretty upset because my job was to do the sales. And it, I'm not a natural salesperson, but I'd worked really hard to learn it. I'd read every book and I felt like the books just weren't connecting with me. They weren't written for a technical introvert. They were written for a natural salesperson. So I was frustrated and I felt like there was a, a lack of the book that I wanted to read. And then when we were in London at the time and the startup scene was pretty new there. And so there was just a bunch of founders swapping war stories, trying to figure it out together. And we were talking about everything, business model design, lean startup, customer development, marketing, everything. And the bit I had, like the one unique idea that I'd figured out was kind of how to do sales and customer development as a technical introvert. And when I was talking about that, it, it felt like it was unique and also valuable to people. So those coaches, like I knew that the idea worked and I went through a few different core metaphors. I ended up using this mom test metaphor, like your, your mom lies to you because she loves you. And so she thinks everything you do is awesome. So she always gives you positive feedback. But I tried other metaphors. I tried a gift giving metaphor. I tried a uh, blindfolded dartboard metaphor. I tried different ways of explaining it. And I knew what worked thanks to the teaching. And, and so then when I sat down, I was like, what should I write? I was like, oh, well, clearly I'm going to write the one idea that I know I have that works for people. So I didn't feel any imposter syndrome really with that book because I'd already proven it. The second one, the Workshop Survival Guide, we built a small education agency. Because after doing a scalable startup for my first business, I wanted to do a bootstrap reliable business for my second. We built that agency to just shy of a million dollars a year with a team of about four. So it was reasonably profitable mm -hmm. for a small team. And we figured out some stuff about education design that I'd never seen elsewhere. 
and I, I'd studied teaching theory and education theory. So I kind of knew what was in the literature and I thought we had like a nice idea. And so again, I was on a vacation that was boring this time in um, Thailand, I think. And I was just like, oh, the beach, I'm so sick of the beach. And so again, due to boredom, I started writing and I, I didn't get the whole first draft on there, but a piece of it. And that was that I was done with teaching, but I wanted to capture this lesson from my career so that I could be done with it and move back to product. You know, there were different purposes. And then this third one was just that uh, a friend asked for help. And as I pulled on that thread, I, I realized I had a book on my hands. All right, perfect. So in a way, teaching always led to writing your books. And now teaching first is something that you would highly recommend as well, I believe. Yeah, I think uh, sometimes you already are doing it in your career, even if you're just teaching your team members, like every programmer teaches because you're always coaching up junior programmers, for example. So every programmer is automatically a teacher. So their books tend to be more useful because, you know, they've done it as part of their work. If you've never taught or you've never coached, I highly recommend spending a bit of time because it's way faster to iterate on a coaching conversation than to iterate on a 50,000 word manuscript or a 20,000 word manuscript or whatever. And if this feels scary, remember that you're not asking for a favor. You're asking to help people for free. You're saying basically like, hey, I think I understand this topic. If it matters to you, let me answer your questions and help you out. And if nobody wants to accept your free personal help, are they really going to want to read your book about it? And that doesn't mean you need to give up, but maybe you need to change the way you describe it. Or maybe you need to write it for a slightly different reader segment. You know, by, by using these, these early teaching conversations, you, you learn a lot. Not everyone does that. Uh, Arvid Call and Marty Kagan, they both use blogging as their equivalent. So they, used, uh, they wrote the sections of their book kind of in public as blog posts. They built a mailing list. They, they, they were very accessible. They would have conversations with their subscribers and their readers. And they use that as their way to figure it out. Whereas I, I really like the teaching conversations, but do something. Like don't start with a manuscript. That's crazy. Do you think teaching at first helps with the curse of knowledge or does it just make it a little bit more difficult to, to bring it down to the basics? So a lot of professors write terrible books, even though they spend all day teaching. But what they're doing wrong, if you think back to university, it's one directional teaching. They're standing on stage and they're broadcasting, but they're never actually listening to where their students get confused. And if the students don't understand, they often blame the students and the students blame themselves. The, the etiquette in, in university is that if the students didn't understand, it's the student's fault. It's never the professor's fault. But when you're writing a book, it's always the author's fault. And so for teaching to be a good test, you need to be listening. So I actually prefer to teach one-on-one -on -one or in small groups. And then I follow up with people. It's like, hey, you seem confused. That's my fault. I must have explained it badly. Like, Try to re-explain this to me. Let, me. let me see how you're thinking about it. There was a, a chess book um, called uh, The Amateur's Mind. The whole way this book was written, chess books are traditionally very bad because it's a person who is a master explaining things from a master's perspective to beginners who aren't a master and they can't understand it. And it, what he did is he basically played games with students and at every move, he's like, tell me what you're thinking right now. Just talk through your thoughts. And he's like, wow, you completely misunderstand what's going on. But because he was hearing, he was listening to his students. This is the important thing. Teaching at its best is two directional. You're explaining, but you're also listening because you're trying to improve the way you teach. And this is what university professors get wrong. And this is why their books are so bad. It's like they're always talking and never listening. Yeah, that's a funny thing. Um, so I taught English for 
two years. Uh, first in primary school, then um, in seventh grade. And what I would find is that often, you know, you need to listen, come back. And sometimes I had this idea, you know what? I wish I were teaching in university because then it's just me telling them. And if they don't want to listen or if they don't want to understand and revise it themselves, well, then it's their problem, not mine. Of course, it's it's the wrong mindset. But um, I can see the, the difference where, where university professors think, OK, they reach a certain age. So it's a little bit more up to them to, to see what they understand. and and go look for more information themselves. Yeah, but a book in particular, it exists as a standalone object in the free market. And if you have a beta reader or you're coaching someone and they don't get it, you can kind of notice and explain it to them. But with your, when your book's out there in the market, you don't have that luxury anymore. Your book needs to stand on its own. And uh, there's a common uh, type of book where you read it and you go, I can tell the author is smart. And I can tell that the author knows what they're talking about, but the way they're explaining it, I can't benefit from that knowledge. And that, that's a death blow to a book because no one's going to recommend that book. Uh, maybe you get a launch spike in your sales because of your reputation and your credentials, but you're not going to have a long-term growing asset. You're not going to have a long-term royalty stream. And so this humility of going into it, the, the, the mindset I take into writing a book is... I know I have a valuable idea to share, but I need to discover the right way to explain it, to frame it, to deliver it such that it sticks in the minds and can be applied in the lives of the readers who I'm trying to reach. And that, that's humble. Like my first drafts are always wrong, hugely wrong. And no matter how many revisions I do by myself, it's still going to be wrong because it's going to be wrong, just more beautiful. Mm -hmm. And so this is why I use so many of the, the reader conversations, the beta rating. It's like, help me figure out where you're confused. Help me figure out where, you know, I sound smart, but you can't use it. Like, or I sound pretentious and you shut the book because you're mad at me or any number of issues. Uh, in the mom test, I got great feedback from a beta reader. He goes, there's some really interesting ideas in this book, but chapters two, three, and four are kind of pretentious, aren't they? <laughs> I was like, you know what? You're right. And I just deleted those three chapters. And because a lot of making a great book is, is removing the garbage that's around your good ideas so that a higher percentage of the book is good. And, and if you can cut out all the bad bits, then you're left with something amazing. Yeah. So beta reading is definitely the solution to um, overcome discourse of knowledge and get on the same line with your with your readers is that what so that's why you created help this book and at what point of time did you decide to create um, this website i've wanted to build tools for independent authors for a long time but it was hard to figure out the business model and the marketing so there, there's a million books self-published per year uh, 10 percent of them are non-fiction 90 percent are fiction and if you think about the man hours going into that like most people spend, you know, say 500, 1,000 hours more on their book. It's a big investment of human capital. And, and it's a shame when someone has a good idea and their book doesn't work, right? It, it deserves to be out there. That idea deserves to be out there. Anyway, I, but I couldn't figure it out. And, and beta reading in particular was, was a real annoyance for me. Google Docs is great at a small scale. Uh, but once you're dealing with hundreds of comments on tens of thousands of words in the manuscript, it gets pretty unwieldy. So I, I thought that was nice. Another issue that we're working on is interior layout. 
right now the tools is it's a choice between easy but it's not customizable at all versus very customizable but it takes 10 times longer like 20 to 40 hours and so there's there's some interesting tensions in in the tooling for independent authors so I, I wanted to do that. Beta reading is something that I, I feel is just so important. And when we were setting up, we actually, there, there's a couple other tools out there and they're not very well maintained. They're not, they don't have real teams behind them. And we, when we started, we tried to acquire one of those abandoned projects and, and basically build on top of it. But uh, in the, we got so close in the acquisition talks, but in the end, they, they didn't want to sell. So we had to build our own. And it's been great. We were still in private alpha, but we've had about 12 books launch out of it who have used it for their beta reading. And I'm so excited. They, they love it. Some of the big things we work on is you can do this in Google Docs, but it takes a little bit of creativity is I, I look for quantitative signals about where readers are getting bored. So for example, if they're leaving lots of comments in chapters one and two and three, and then no comments for the rest of the book, you know that something terrible happened in either chapter three or chapter four. And so, and each time you do an iteration, like I run beta reading in iterations of two to eight weeks, depending on, you know, what else is going on in my life and how many words I've written. Uh, each iteration, you should be fixing the next set of problems so that your readers get a little bit further through the book and see more of the value. And over time, everyone's getting to the end. They're loving it. They're bringing their friends, all of this stuff. And so we kind of figured, you know, with, with big manuscripts, we could put in some tools to make that sort of analysis a lot easier. And also one of the challenges with getting feedback is people tend to be nice to you. This is the same issue that the mom test dealt with, but for books instead of for businesses. And you want to know where they're bored. You want to know where they're confused. You want to know where they're angry, but people won't leave you those comments. And so we just put in like those as buttons. It's like, this seems a bit slow. This seems a bit confusing. And we found that it massively increases the amount of negative feedback you get, which is really helpful. That actually is what you want as an author, because you want to get your negative feedback during beta reading, not in your Amazon reviews. You, you want it ahead of time so that you can fix it pre-launch. One of the things about uh, Help This Book that you mentioned is that it, it tells you where the reader gets bored. So for example, it says, okay, they stopped reading at this part um, of, of the book, and that's probably where something went wrong just a little bit before that. So yesterday I was reading uh, in Google Docs, I was beta reading uh, a book of a friend and his first chapter was really great. And then the second chapter was good as well, but I didn't get the same value. So it was a long story in the beginning. And I said, you know what? I like this idea of telling where I get bored. So I left a comment and said, you know what? I read up to here. I'm going to stop here for now because I'm not getting the same value as, as in the first chapter. I'm not sure if it was appreciated, but I liked the idea. That, that's amazing. That's exactly what an author should want to hear. And it, it feels emotionally bad. You know, it always does. Even for me, I know it's amazing and it still hurts because you work hard and you're, you're in, in many ways, when you put a book out for review, for, for reading, for feedback, for whatever, you're, you're exposing a piece of your soul. And it's hard to know that you missed the mark, but you, you've also got to, sometimes if I feel my ego firing up, like I'm starting to get mad at a reviewer, it's just like, okay, slow down. I need to step away from the computer. I need to take a break as long as I need to calm down. Maybe that's an hour, maybe that's a week. And then come back in with a mind where I can be appreciative that they're showing me problems and then I, I can fix them. It's a hard thing to do, but it's so valuable and it's so important. Mm -hmm. And you look at beta reading as a kind of marketing tactic as well, right? 
Um, are there any other big tips that you'd want to share with others about marketing that first book? So beta reading overlaps with marketing. So I like to start marketing in the second half of beta reading. So when I know that the book still has problems, it's still got lots of typos, but the finish line is in sight. I can tell that people are getting value. And so I know that I'm going to be able to finish in three months or six months or whatever it is. Uh, I don't like starting to pre-sell too early because personally, I don't like the tension of the deadline with a giant creative task. I like to know that I've sorted out the main creative challenges and that it's just execution challenges like editing, proofreading. That stuff is still important, but it's not risky. You can put it on a timeline. You can put it on a schedule. So that's when I like to start pre-marketing and pre-selling. The other approaches that are useful if you're first time, the biggest one, but it's also the highest time cost, is to write the book more or less in public. So as you write sections and chapters, as you do your research, as you make progress, you're sharing all of that. Maybe it's blog posts, maybe it's tweets, maybe it's LinkedIn updates, maybe it's TikTok videos. I, it can be whatever. But basically, you're, you're spending a year deeply thinking about some topic. You can use that activity. Uh, Austin Cleon in the book, Show Your Work, he says it really well. He says, at the end of your day, take 10 minutes, share something that you built that day, something that you learned that day, something you struggled with that day. Just share it. He's like, yes, it takes time. Yes, you're tired. Yes, you don't want to do it. But like you got to, and if you do that every day, then by the time you're ready to launch the book, you got a little platform. That's really helpful if you're willing to do it. However, there's other options. The others I use is uh, if you haven't done that and you're launching, the podcast book tour is really powerful. You have a book that, at least for nonfiction, it solves a problem. It accomplishes something. You, you've researched deeply some interesting topic for the last year. You've got stuff to say. Uh, and so that is content for, uh, I mean, you could speak to this, but that's content for the podcast host, right? It, it's a yeah. really good excuse to reach out. Um, another way you can do it is um, Amazon's PPC ads, pay-per-click ads are actually really good, especially if you're self-published. Because when you're self-published, you get higher margins per book, about five times higher, which means you can outbid traditionally published authors and publishers while still turning a good profit. So a three to one profit is not unusual. Now, you're only gonna get a small amount of volume, but it's enough to get your first few hundred or a thousand readers over a few months. And then my view is ultimately the book is either recommendable and long lasting, or it's not. If it's not recommendable and long lasting, then you're in a tough spot because you need to be the book's marketer forever. And that's hard because books are low value, undifferentiated products. Whereas if the book is recommendable and long lasting, then you can just find 500 people or a thousand people and say, that's it. That's all the marketing I'm ever going to do for this book. And then they will talk about it. That's what I did for the mom test. I, I, I marketed 800 books myself, 700 through event giveaways, and then 100 through content marketing. After that, I said, great. I put 800 of them out there. It's now going to either succeed or fail based on its own merits. And it's now sold, I don't know, 80,000. So I got, you know, pretty good leverage, um, a hundred to one or something on the yeah. copies I sold myself, which makes it a lot more profitable. The same held true for my second book. The same appears to be true for my third book. But you know, when you're doing that, when you're counting on word of mouth, you have to be relentless about your product design, your testing, your beta reading, all of this stuff. 
Yeah. So for these books to become long lasting, you say they need to be problem solvers. And um, the other way or the other uh, kind of nonfiction book, you call them pleasure givers. Do you think these pleasure givers could ever be long lasting? Yes, absolutely. Uh, however, I think it's more of a gamble and you need to be a bit of a genius or very lucky. So for example, I mean, I'm jumping into fiction here, but Harry Potter is a long lasting pleasure giver, right? All novels that are classics have managed this. How did that happen? Well, obviously it's a good book. That's a precondition. That's table stakes to buy in, but then also a bit of luck, right? Plus really good follow through execution. But to me, as I, I treat books as my business, um, and I'm not willing to bet on a strategy that has a big ingredient of luck in it. If I was making art, fine. You know, I'd be happy to take that. You do it for its own sake, and maybe, maybe you also win the financial prize. But, you know, I'm, whatever. I'm, I'm trying to support my family and my business and all of this stuff, so I want more reliability. And problem solvers are nice because, yeah, you can test them in advance. You can predict the market need. During beta reading, you can get signals about whether it's recommendable or not. You, you can think, and this is a little bit of guesswork. It's kind of similar to choosing a startup idea which is hard. It's a bit of a, like a craft and okay. Is this market need still going to be true in 10 years or is it a temporary trend that's likely to sink within two years? You know, that, that's an important question. You can think about that for your book. And sometimes it's smaller decisions, like in the book about workshops, people really wanted us to spend a chapter talking about slide deck templates, because if you're giving lots of workshops and talks, knowing how to build templates is game-changing for your, for your career and time efficiency. And we ultimately decided not to include it, even though everyone wanted us to. And the reason is that slide software changes and we didn't want to have to update the book every time that happened. And so by removing those topics, what we left in, which is about showing up in person, uh, well, I mean, COVID kind of kicked that in the face, but you know, whatever, you can't predict everything. Um, but the book still sells okay. I think right now it's doing 3000 a month in profit, which is whatever. That's my least successful book, but it's still fine and it's stable. And I hope that if COVID ever ends, it'll start to grow properly again. But yeah, like we, the core we left should last for as long as people show up to events and teach, which is hopefully a long time. I did the same in the mom test where I chose not to talk about online interviews and to only talk about face-to-face -face interviews. Now, of course, with COVID, online interviews are really popular. But the core that I left in there is still relevant. And in some ways, it, it matters more what you leave in than what you take out because people don't notice what's missing. And they can get the core principles from the book and then get a digital add-on or get another tactical temporary book to fill in the gaps that you've left. So yeah, I, I think about it. Writing a book's hard. If I'm going to do that work, I want it to pay off for 10 or 20 years, not just one or two. Right. Thank you. Uh, there's been a lot of information here about uh, how to get your book out there, how to make sure that your book is going to get sold. Now I'd like to know a little bit more about uh, Rob as a writer and, and talk a little bit about that first book again, The Mom Test. Uh, what do you think was the biggest obstacle with writing this book? Uh, man. The, the, the two biggest obstacles, if you're doing it for the first time, are editing and interior layout for the print version. Both of them are a nightmare because so now I know that my books can make money. So I'm happy to pay for good editors. With my first book, I was super poor. I was broke. I had no money. 
my business has failed. I wasn't confident to spend anything. In retrospect, that was a mistake because copy editors only cost $400, $500 and proofreaders only cost $200, $300. So to me, given the amount of time you've invested, at the very least, a proofreader is always worth the money. And instead of doing that, I kind of drove myself and my girlfriend at the time crazy because every day we were waking up and rereading the whole book, searching for the next set of typos. And it was a nightmare. It was so stressful. It was so tedious. It drove me crazy. And we, we nearly broke up over it. Um, although I guess we broke up eventually anyway. So <laughs> I'm not sure that that really matters. But the, the professional help is incredible. Now, the expensive editor is a developmental editor who comes earlier. And those are 2000 to 5000 And those I don't necessarily recommend for every author unless you've got more money than you know what to do with and you're willing to buy luxuries. It's a wonderful pleasure. But if you're a first timer, you're strapped for cash, you can use beta readers as a reasonable substitute. It's going to take you more iterations. It's going to be more lonely, but you can do it. You can join a writing group. You can find a friend who's writing a book and, and keep each other accountable, whatever. But man, copy editing, proofreading, just spend the money. It's so worthwhile. And then interior layout is just a mess. If your book is all words, like no footnotes, few illustrations, no tables, nothing fancy, then you can use a tool like uh, Readsy has a good mm -hmm. free layout tool. Vellum is Mac only and premium. It's a little bit expensive, but it's amazing. But these tools aren't flexible. Uh, if you need to do it yourself from scratch, whew, it's a nightmare. You know, it's it's like 40 hours to figure out the tools. It's so frustrating. It, you, you get so mad at everything. So those were the stages where I felt the most crazy. <laughs> the the actual writing, the education design, I enjoy a lot. Yeah, I've been working with Reads a little bit myself, and I've heard other authors talk about Vellum. Uh, and they all kind of liked the tool. So I guess the difference here is probably the amount of images you're going to use. Um, as you said, and text-based only is going to work well. It, it's it's yeah. small stuff. It's it's the edge cases. Like I, I still use Vellum for the mom test because the mom test doesn't really have footnotes. But I started to use a lot more footnotes in the workshop survival guide and in write useful books. And it's just like, oh, I really care about how these appear. And so we had to do it ourselves. And we ended up actually at writeusefulbooks.com slash resources. I, I did a I wrote a guide to doing everything inside Google Docs which is what I now do, which is crazy because it's really not built for that. You need to use add-ons and tools and external software and all this stuff, but it does work. And that's actually what I'm using inside my publishing business now because it's so convenient to do your layout and your writing and your editing all in one tool. So I, I just use Google Docs for everything now, but yeah, it, it's a chore. What, what I tell people, we have this author's community with 150 nonfiction authors, and I tell them that this is a task that's not risky, but it is frustrating. And you need to just allow yourself to get frustrated and keep chipping away at it because a million people per year figure it out. It's not impossible, but it's super tedious and annoying. And you just gotta, gotta do it. But you can also hire freelancers. And this is one of the nice things about being traditionally published is that the publisher does all this for you. It's like the authors we publish through our imprint, they don't even have to think about this. We just do it all. And they're like, oh, that was easy. Our book's on Amazon. It looks beautiful. <laughs> right. So you get the, the book actually published ready, a print ready in Google Docs. Yeah. Right now we're doing everything in Google Docs. We do the PDF, uh, except for the ebook formats because it's ebook export is pretty sloppy. But we do the paperback and the PDF all inside of Google Docs. 
uh, it's definitely not easy, but uh, I, I wrote a pretty comprehensive guide about it with all like the, the print settings we use and everything and the add-ons and whatnot that are helpful. Okay, so people can find these resources on, on which website? Uh, writeusefulbooks.com slash resources. Perfect. So going back to the mom tests, your biggest lesson you say is probably to hire proofreaders and editors so you yeah. get a more professional look. Yeah, it's, it's say $500, $600 for a shortish book. Mom test was uh, 30,000 words. Workshop survival was 50,000. So like for, but the cheapest version is just a proofreader, $150, $200. It's going to save you 50 hours and so much stress. It's so worth it. Best money you'll spend. Right. Any other big lessons uh, going from book one to book two to book three? Um, more beta reading and do your beta reading using an online tool. You can use helpthisbook.com. You can use Google Docs. Just use something that doesn't require exporting PDFs because PDFs, like you don't know if people are reading it or not. You don't know where they stopped. You get no feedback. Then you get a thousand comments all at once. You get version collisions. Beta reading is so, so important. You need to use a web-based tool. Apart from that, I mean, the stuff we talked about, teach before you write, if you can. We had one person in our community, Brian, who actually started beta reading when his book was only 12 pages long. And I loved that because his reasoning was, well, this is the main idea. And if the main idea is not compelling, the rest of the book won't be either. So let me start testing just that and then expand it from there. And when he did it, he was kind of worried. He was saying, I don't actually know if, if this is a book's worth of content. Maybe it's just a big blog post. But then his beta readers loved it, for one thing. And they also had so many questions that he's like, wow, by the time I answer these questions, it'll be a book. And he was nervous at first. We do these writing accountability groups every week. And he's like, oh, I'm not sure. I'm not sure. He's like, whatever. I'm just going to try it. Let me just put out the 12 pages I've got. And then suddenly, all of his uncertainty went away because his readers were showing him where he needed to go next. So that would be my biggest piece of advice is, is serve your readers, find a way to get involved with them, whether you do it through blogging, one to many, through coaching, one to one, through beta reading, one to few, you know, find something. And if that uh, makes you feel like it's a nightmare, then maybe choose a different book to write. Because if you don't like the idea of hanging out with your readers, helping them and getting their feedback, then you're, you're probably not going to invest the effort and spend the time to make a successful book. And so I'd say like, adjust it, adjust the scope until you find readers you're excited to hang out with. And then that'll make the whole process so much easier. Right. So summing everything up, you're going to look for beta readers. You want to teach it first. Um, you're going to need a little bit of help if you want to make it all professional. Uh, so if, if, I was, if I was summarizing, you know, a few tips for you to take away. Start by teaching, you know? When you're scoping, when you're deciding what you want to write, figure out who it's for and who it's not for. If people aren't excited to get help from you, they're probably not going to be excited to read your book either. So use these early conversations as a way to figure out if what you're writing is desirable. Do people want it? Use the teaching to figure out if it's effective. Does it work? When you write your drafts, don't worry about making them beautiful. Write a first draft, pour it down. You know, Close your eyes, words on paper. Don't reread, don't self-judge. For your second and third drafts, start rereading, start evaluating, start trying to make it more coherent, start trying to start with value. You know, you, you need to start with a bang. On the cover of your book, the cover of your book makes a promise about what the reader is going to receive. They need to start receiving value toward that promise, not just theory, not just a, a description of your whole life story, 
but something they can use, ideally within the first few pages and then every couple of pages after that. Think about that stuff. But don't worry about making it beautiful. Don't worry about fixing every typo. Third draft is probably enough. Start getting some beta readers in, you know? Iterate, iterate, iterate. Um, once you start feeling confident with beta readers, start putting it out there in public. Turn sections into blog posts. Tweet it, do something, get it out there. Start collecting emails so that when you launch, you wanna have some people, you wanna have some testimonials, you wanna have some emails. Um, after launch, Amazon PPC ads are great. Uh, the, the podcast book tour is great. Content marketing works if you have an audience. You know, if you have it, use it. It's like building any other product. Like you're delivering value to a certain type of person and you need to iterate with that person during product development. If you do that, you're gonna have a, you know, a successful launch, even if it's small. The mom test sold $500 worth of books its first month, $500, almost nothing. It now does $12,000 per month, eight years later, and it's still growing every month, mm -hmm. right? I had zero author platform when I launched that, but I, the way I built it, like it would grow through word of mouth and I knew it would be long lasting. So if you have an author platform, use it, right? Use every advantage you've got. If you don't, then work extra hard to make the book itself recommendable and long lasting. Uh, when you're writing, control your context, remove distractions. Uh, something else I didn't mention is it's much better to have a small writing session every day instead of a big writing session once per week. Consistency is key. If you can give it one hour every morning, you can finish a book like that. That's much better than giving it 10 hours once a week. So, you know, chip away at it. It's a fun process. And if it works, like my first book has now done more than, uh, more than half a million dollars in royalties. And I don't actively market it. I don't have a big author platform. It's just word of mouth. And I'd expect that the next two years we'll do that again. So it's like, they can be a great path. Like royalties are really pure passive income. It's such an advantage. It's amazing. It opens the door to building businesses. It does all this stuff. April Dunford had a pretty successful consulting business around product positioning. And when she released her book, Obviously Awesome, she said her consulting business quadrupled in two years, wow. which is crazy. And, you know, like it has to be a good book though. The days of writing garbage and getting a benefit are, are done. There's too many books now. Garbage doesn't work anymore. But if you can write a good book, then yeah, the, the royalties are significant. The reputation and, and, and income boost is significant. It's, it's such a great way to spend your time. And even if you don't care about the income, you're putting the most valuable thing you've learned out into the world so that other people can benefit. And that has an impact factor, right? Teaching is always high impact because you're enabling other people to do great things. So I, I love books. I, I hope you write yours and, uh, you know, I hope that you're successful with it. Thank you for summarizing everything. And you even went uh, into one of my final questions without me having to ask you when you talked a little about distractions and writing daily. So I wanted to ask you for your three more practical writing tips. Step away from the computer every now and then. Writing on paper is magical. Uh, sometimes if you're stuck, you're staring at the screen, even printing out your manuscript and then reviewing it on paper is so clarifying. Remember what you're doing it for. You're not doing it to sound smart. You're doing it to help your reader, right? Sometimes you write something that's really clever, but it's not beneficial for the reader. Or you've got two anecdotes or examples or case studies, which both make the same point and they're both great. Well, delete one of them. The reader probably only needs one example to get the idea. Respect the reader's time. You know, a, a short book is actually an advantage for business books anyway, because the reader has to pay twice. They pay the cover price, but then they also pay again with their time when they're reading it and implementing it. If you can make it shorter, that's actually an advantage. 
turn off your alerts, you know, your, your, your phone's the enemy. Uh, your, your email is the enemy. I see people flitting back and forth. It's like programming. You need kind of deep focus. You need to hold the, at least a big chunk of the document in your head, the, the, whether it's a narrative or whether it's an educational journey. If you keep jumping back and forth between Slack, between email, between your document, you're, you're not writing, you're doing nothing. So just turn all that off. You know, turn off your e internet if you have to. Close all the windows. It's stupid. You feel like you shouldn't need it, but we do. <laughs> right, perfect. Uh, let me end with my final question. What is your secret? Hmm. I mean, for, for books, I think the, the most important thing that I learned, there were two, they both came from other people. So Seth Godin, uh, who's, you know, made a great career off of books. He spent a while also as a publisher and in the publishing industry. And, and he noted that um, books, okay, so most books fail almost immediately. If you look at not New York Times nonfiction bestsellers, um, I, I saw a report of 2000 of them that were sampled and on, on average, they peaked within 12 weeks, lost 95% of their peak sales within a year and never recovered. However, some books break this pattern and instead of spiking and then fading, they continue to grow. They're long lasting. The industry calls them backlist or back catalog um, books or perennial, whatever. They're, they're these long lasting books. And the secret is, um, I can't remember the exact number, but I believe they're responsible for 90% of the publishing industry's profits. And they account for only 2% of the marketing effort because they sell themselves through word of mouth. And when I sat down to write books, in my head, I was like, if I follow the industry standard, it's not worth doing because the expected outcome is so bad. So I put all my effort into saying, how can I create one of these books that's gonna last? Um, and I now appear to have done it three times out of three. So it certainly is repeatable. This is the process I wrote about in Write Useful Books. And this is what we've talked about tonight. It's like treating it as product design, testing it, iterating it. That's a secret and it shouldn't be a secret. It's in plain sight, but, but people don't appear to know it. And the other piece I was told by uh, Alex Osterwalder who wrote Business Model Generation, this breakout category breaking bestseller. And he, he said, I'm paraphrasing here, but for, based on what I remember, he said, you know why most business books fail? And I was like, you know, tell me. We're in some whiskey bar in London. And he goes, uh, he goes, because the authors are too in love with writing. And what he meant is that they get hung up, at least in my interpretation, they get hung up on what they can control, which is the writing, instead of what matters, which is the value received by the reader. And often the words are a speed bump or an obstacle to the reader receiving value. And if you're too in love with, with writing, you waste the reader's time making yourself appear smart. And so combining that goal for the back catalog plus the humility of it's not my words, it's the reader's, what the reader receives, not what I say. Um, those two things, to me, that's the secret. Perfect. Thank you for your time, Rob. Before we go, is there anything else you would like to share or where can people reach you? Um, people can reach me via robfitz.com, R-O-B-F-I-T-Z. There's also links to all my books and stuff. If you're writing a book and you want help, uh, writeusefulbooks.com slash community. We've got 150 authors in the community. We're all working together. We're writing our books. We're trying to help each other out. We'd love to see you there. But basically, I mean, what I want is just put your book out. You know, the world needs more good books. It doesn't need more bad books. But, you know, if you're willing to spend the effort to make a good book, then, you know, we need to know what you know. 
even if you can only help a, you know, a small set of people, like if one person had written a book for me and my first business, maybe that business would have succeeded instead of failed if they'd written it in a way I could understand. So I, you know, I hope you do that. And I encourage you to get started, write something today. If it's too late today, write something tomorrow morning. First thing. Thank you so much for listening. Please give Rob a follow at RobFitz on Twitter. Visit www.coffeeandpens.com to find links to his website, to his communities, and to other useful articles that we discussed in this interview. If there are any questions, please let me know. And for now, I've only got one more request. Please hit that subscribe button so you'll stay on track of future episodes of the Coffee and Pens podcast. Hope you have a nice day. Kill. Out.